Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking actually at Acts or at uh, Exodus, chapter twelve this morning, or chapter twenty-eight. But we want to read this passage from Luke's Gospel concerning uh, John the Baptist, the one who prepares for the advent, for the coming of this one to whom we're referring, the great and final prophet, priest, and king. So read with me at Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysianias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This too is God's word. We thank God for it. We ask God for help in understanding it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage and thank you as we read it together. Thank you that we read about things that are rooted in history. And we thank you that this celebration of Advent is not the celebration of fable, but it is the celebration of the work of your Father for us in the midst of this world in which we live. Help us better to understand that work, what you have done, what the Father has commissioned you to do. Help us to understand it by giving us your Spirit so that we might understand. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We, uh, we are in this season of Advent, and I want to encourage us to continue thinking, if you will, about the significance of this season. I know that our culture is not a particularly reflective culture. It's not a culture that much values quiet and meditation and contemplation. We're, we're, we're not a culture that values these things. We're a culture that values activity and, and efficiency and performance and accomplishment and, and productivity and that sort of thing. Um, but this is an important thing, uh, this business of reflecting and, and meditating. And as you're driving through your neighborhoods and driving around Indian River County, let me encourage you to ponder again, why are all these lights out here? Why are we doing this? Why do people put these lights up? Why do we drag these evergreen trees into our, into our houses and put lights on them and And why do we give gifts? I mean, why do we do this? The answer 
and I've said this, I think, every year that I've been here at Christ the King, the answer, the reason that we do this is because something really did happen. Something really did happen. We celebrate things that really happened. And this is a thing that really happened. And the question I'm encouraging us to think about uh, as we think about Advent, which means a coming and appearing, I'm encouraging us to think about who it is who came. Who came? Exactly who came. And I'm encouraging us to think about it in terms of these three offices or roles or functions that you find across the whole of the Old Testament. Who came? The prophet came. The priest came. The king came. The greater prophet and priest and king came. We looked last week at the greater prophet who has come, the one who was promised in Deuteronomy, the the greater Moses. And he's a greater Moses because he not only receives the word from God and speaks the word of God for the benefit of the people of God, but he is the word of God. He is the word who is made flesh and who, who has dwelt among us. Barb asked me last week after the sermon on the way home, she said, don't other religions have their prophets? And she knows the answer to that, and I do too, and you know the answer to that. Don't other religions have their prophets? They certainly do, but there are two things at least, that distinguish this prophet from all of the other prophets. And, and I can't, I just think you've got to reflect on this. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to ponder these things. At least two things that differentiate and distinguish this prophet from all of the other prophets. This particular prophet not only claims to have the word of God and speak the word of God, this particular prophet claims to be the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus said in John 14. And then the other thing that distinguishes this particular prophet from the other prophets is that this prophet isn't dead anymore. (laughs) He isn't dead anymore. Peter, when he preaches his first sermon in Acts, acknowledges that David, who in his own way was a prophet, that David's tomb is with us. He points specifically to this great hero in Israel, to David, this one who himself did act in behalf of God, did function in the place of God. But he's dead, and his tomb is with us. And what distinguishes Jesus, we'll see this more clearly next week, as the king greater than David is the fact that he's alive. That's at the center of New Testament Christianity. That's at the center of Christianity. This prophet is alive, raised on the third day. And that cannot be said of any other prophet who has lived. And so really, if you think about it, the great celebration for Christians, the time when there really should be the singing and the rejoicing and the parties and the giving of gifts and all of that other stuff, the real time of rejoicing, in fact, is not Christmas. But it's Easter. It's Resurrection Day. There is no Christmas if there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection Become a Jew and keep waiting. 
we celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the one who has come as the greater prophet. And now we look at this second role, this second function, the priest. He is the greater priest. And I want to ask the same questions here that I asked last week in asking about the prophet. Why do I need a prophet? What does a prophet do? And how is Jesus the greater prophet? I want to ask the same questions. Why do I need a priest? And what does this priest do? And how is Jesus the greater priest? And these three things are going to be kind of woven together into a single cord, okay? So so stay with me because it's not going to be one, two, three in some neat and tidy way. But just listen as we reflect on these things. Why do I need a priest? I really believe we get a clue, a real clue, a real clear indication of why we need a priest. Actually, from Exodus chapter 28 and these verses that we've read. I really do want to encourage you to read this passage if you haven't. And actually, what I want to really encourage you to do is read not only this passage, but read all of chapter 28 and all of chapter 29. It may not seem much like Advent reading, but read those two chapters and then read what follows them. You can do this in the course of this next week. Read 28 and 29, and then read chapters 32 and 33 and 34 of Exodus, and the drama that unfolds, this incredible drama that occurs right after these particular passages, this passage we're looking at, this drama of the people rebelling against God after they've been given this passage about a great high priest who's going to have emblazoned on this turban that he will wear on his head the words, holy to the Lord. And in connection with holy to the Lord in these passages, there is this encouragement, this teaching That this one who wears on his forehead these words, holiness to the Lord, will in fact himself bear the iniquity of the people. He will bear the iniquity of the people. Their iniquity as they bring their gifts. They bring them with sinful hands. They bring them with unclean hands. But that iniquity with which they bring these gifts For the forgiving of that iniquity gets transferred from them and it gets transferred to the high priest. You're beginning to get a picture of what it is that this high priest does and what the greater priest does. But what will God see when he looks upon this high priest who bears the iniquities of these people as they bring their gifts? What will he see? He will not see the iniquity. He won't see that. He will see holy to the Lord. And what follows that in these chapters in 28 and 29 then is this rebellion. The people making this golden calf, lifting up this golden calf, celebrating the strength of this calf, honoring this calf as the one who has brought them out of their bondage. And then there is Moses who acts, who intervenes, who intercedes in chapters 32 and 33. I'm telling you the whole story. We don't have time to read 28, 29, 30, 32, 34. I'm telling you the story. 
Moses who intervenes, who inserts himself into this dispute between a just and holy God who has just spoken with such majestic grace and kindness about what he will do, that he will lift up a priest, he will make a priest, and he will transfer from the people the sins of the people to that priest, and he won't see those sins, he will see holy to the Lord. The people rebel and Moses inserts himself between this just and holy God and this rebellious people and he intercedes. He prays. He pleads with God that God would not destroy the people, the whole nation. And God hears the prayers of Moses. Why do I need a priest? I need a priest, again, as I look at this passage, I need a priest for the same reason that Aaron, in fact, needed a priest. Think about it. Look at what happens in these verses. Chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. What is it that has to happen to Aaron? Look at what has to happen to Aaron. He has to be clothed, doesn't he? He has to be clothed. He has to be clothed with garments for glory and for beauty. He has to be clothed with these garments made of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns that are finely twined. Aaron has to be clothed in order to stand in the presence of God. His sons have to be clothed in order along with their father Aaron to stand in the presence of God and to serve in the presence of God. Aaron has to be clothed in these garments of beauty and glory. Why? Because in himself and of himself, Aaron is not glorious. And Aaron is not beautiful. Several things, again, that I want us to think about as we reflect upon this. I've been struck this week, struck by this phrase, for glory and beauty. He was clothed for glory and for beauty. As you think about that phrase, you think about those words, let me mention these things. First of all, God is teaching us here, isn't he? When God speaks, as God reveals himself, as God discloses his word, He's not just giving us rules. He's not just giving us stuff that we need to do or stuff that we need to be. But he's instructing us, isn't he? 
Isn't he showing us things, teaching us things? Whenever God speaks, he does that, and he does that because he is a God who loves his people. He is a father who loves his children. These garments are for glory and for beauty. He's teaching us something, not just about Aaron, but isn't he teaching us about ourselves? And then here's the second thing. Let's remember this idea that is woven into the fabric of the scriptures. Again, it's alien to us. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around it. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around it when we look at it and consider it in Romans chapter 5 as Paul draws this analogy between the first Adam and the second Adam. But here's the idea. It's the idea that runs through the whole Bible. The one stands for the many. The one stands for the many. What is true of the one is true of the many. You see it in verses 10 and 11 in this passage. This garment that Aaron is to wear that's to be constructed of all of these beautiful materials, it has epaulets, if you will. It has these shoulder pieces. And there are these onyx stones that are on these epaulets. And into these onyx stones are engraved the names of the 12 tribes. Right, so when Aaron goes into the presence of God, this is some of the beauty and the imagery that's being conveyed to us here about what the greater high priest does. When Aaron goes into the presence of God, he bears on his shoulders, if you will, This is what we call anthropomorphic imagery, okay? God doesn't need something on somebody's shoulder in order to look down from above and see it. He sees all things and he knows all things. But the imagery is there to convey to us that when Aaron goes into the very presence of God, what he sees on the shoulders of the high priest is the names of the 12 tribes, the one standing for the many. And in fact, the names of the 12 tribes are not just for the 12 themselves, but each of those names represents a tribe, the one standing for the many. It's a theme that is woven through the scriptures. Aaron, as he goes into the presence of God, is the one who represents The many, and if Aaron needs to be clothed, if the great high priest needs to be clothed, isn't it the case that those whom he represents need to be clothed as well? And then that leads to this third thing. And that is the nature of the clothing itself. As Aaron goes into the presence of God, he bears with him, he carries on his body, this clothing that is made up of gold and precious stones, these fabrics that are composed of blue and purple and red, skillfully woven together. And how is all of that clothing summarized? You shall make holy garments for Aaron, for glory and for beauty for glory and for beauty. Again, what is it that the scriptures are telling me that I need? What is it that the scriptures are telling me that I don't have? If Aaron doesn't have it, 
If he represents me, that means I don't have it. And what I don't have is glory and beauty. Glory and beauty. Holiness, I understand. It's in the text two times. These garments are called holy garments. And in verse 3, Aaron's garments are to consecrate him for the priesthood. That is the same word. The word translated differently, but it's the same word. They are to make Aaron holy for his work as priest. Holiness, I have some understanding of. It means to be set apart. It means to be separated. It means to be, and we know this, it means to be something that I'm not. But do I ever contemplate holiness in terms of glory and beauty? Holiness always feels burdensome to me. Holiness always feels like being deprived, saying no. But you see, there is a connection being made here between holiness, being pure, being set apart, consecrated, and glory and beauty. It is glory and beauty that Aaron will be robed in If you think back to Genesis, if you think back to the early verses, the first part of the Bible, what is it that we're designed for? What is it that we're made for? What is it that we are constructed to bear? Genesis 1, 26, you know this verse. God speaks at the end of his creative activity as he comes to the end of the sixth day. He says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. In our image and after our likeness. What is it that is characteristic of God? When Isaiah comes into the presence of God himself in Isaiah chapter 6, what is it that Isaiah sees? What is it that Isaiah has to be shielded from? He has to be shielded from the holiness of God. He has to be shielded from the refulgent splendor of the glory of God. What is it that Moses asks for in Exodus chapter 3 verse 18? Please show me your glory, Moses asks. Why does he ask for that? Because it's what he's made for. What he is made for as the image bearer of God is to mirror and give expression to the refulgent splendor and glory and majesty and power of the God who is there. What is an image? An image is a replica, a representation, a picture of something else. What is the image bearer? God creates you, men and women together. God creates you after his image, in his likeness, to reflect realities about him, 
to be mirrors, if you will, of his very existence and his very character. I've shared this story with you before. I only have a few, I'm sorry. When my first daughter was born, when Katie was born, the doctor took this screaming little child and toweled her off and put her in my arms and I looked in her face and, and I, it was the most weird and at the same time sublime experience of my life. Because as I looked into that face, I saw my sister. I saw a likeness. And then I caught myself and realized it wasn't my sister, it was my daughter, but the family likeness was imposed upon her. What is it to be in the image of God? It is to bear that family likeness. And that family likeness takes in all of these things. It takes in holiness. It takes in majesty. It takes in power. It takes in glory. It takes in might and strength. I wish we could talk for a half an hour about how Christianity is so very different at precisely this point. Because if you look at the Koran, maybe I've said this to you before, if you look at the Koran, you will not find an account of the creation of woman. You will find an account of the creation of the man in the image of God, as the glory bearer. But in Genesis 1, it is the man and it is the woman in the image of God who together bear that glory and reflect that glory out into the world. You ever wonder about why Moses in Exodus 33 asks to see the glory of God? He's seen God's power. He's seen his might. He has seen his grace and mercy. He has not seen enough. He has not seen the thing he is made to see. He is made to see the glory of God. And he is made to reflect it. There is an insatiable, appetite in your soul for the glory and beauty of God. You wonder why you have desire. You wonder why you have longing. You can push back with me on this. We'll talk. I'll stay as long after the service as you want. I'd be happy to press this with you. You wonder why you have desire and you wonder why you desire the particular things that you desire, right? Think about it. Why is it that we're so interested in influence? Why is it that we're so interested in power? Why does it seem to matter so much to us that when we don't have power or influence ourselves, but we know someone who does have power or influence, we want other people to know 
that we know someone who has power and influence. Have you ever noticed that? That's where name dropping comes from. That's why people want you to know who they know. I'll tell you somebody I know indirectly through my middle daughter, Doc Rivers, basketball coach, Boston Celtics or Celtics as those of us from Ireland would prefer. Our middle daughter babysat for Doc Rivers when we lived in Orlando. Doc Rivers' oldest son, Austin, is the most highly sought-after senior and high school basketball player in the country. He's going to Duke. He's not going to Southwestern Michigan Junior College. You see how this stuff works? If we don't have it, we want to know people who do, and not only that, we want people we know to know that we know those people who do have it. Glory, 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 power, majesty, influence. Let me use the biblical word, dominion. And so God blessed them and commissioned them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, exercise dominion over it. How about beauty, glory and beauty? What is it? I quoted last week the first verse Sarah McLaughlin's song, Angel, only quoted the first verse. Here's the second verse. Listen to these words. Look, I've told you, I'm gonna, someday I'm going to write a book, okay? The Gospel According to Rock and Roll. Long on analysis, short on solutions. Listen to Sarah McLaughlin. So tired of the straight line, and everywhere you turn, there's vultures and thieves at your back. The storm keeps on twisting. You keep on building the lie that you make up for all that you lack. You keep on building the lie that you make up for all that you lack. Think about it. Isn't that insightful? Why is it there? Why is there this relentless compulsion, this relentless impulse to seek to be lovely? Now look, I understand that for a lot of us here, we gave up that fight a long time ago. But think back 20 years or 30 years or 40 years and think back to how important it was and how important it continues to be for our culture to 
be lovely, to be beautiful. Why? Is it an aberration? No. It is at the core of who and what you are as a human being made in the image of God, created to bear the weight of glory and created to give expression to the loveliness that is God himself. And loveliness and beauty, power and glory are like mercury, aren't they? They just slip through your fingers. And they do because of sin and the fall. They do because what happened at the fall and what happened in the initial rebellion is that Adam sought together with his wife to be not the reflectors, not the image bearers, not those who would bear the weight of glory and loveliness. They sought themselves to be glory and loveliness. And everything, my friends, turns to dust when God is dethroned and I seek to place myself on the throne as the center of power and glory. I just, you know, I like golf. A lot of you know that. Every once in a while I watch the Golf Channel and there's this program on the Golf Channel that features Donald Trump. And every time I see Donald Trump, I think, Donald, how much longer is it going to last for you? How much longer do you think it's going to last? How much longer is it going to be possible for you to seek to exalt yourself and place yourself at the center of everything? exalting yourself as the one supremely powerful and supremely beautiful. I don't think he's very good looking. He's got this funny mouth, but he keeps doing it. He keeps doing it. Tiger has his game back. How long? How long, Tiger? How long will it be before you realize that you are not the epicenter of glory and beauty? You are a creature made in the image of God, constructed to bear the weight of glory, to reflect the effulgence, the spectacular beauty of the God who is there. But you are not God. How long? What happened at the creation? It's so striking to me. Adam and Eve were naked before the fall, and yet they were clothed, clothed in glory and beauty. They were naked after the fall, and yet clothed, clothed with sin and shame. Why do I need a high priest? What does a high priest do? Again, I've got to ask you to read Exodus. Read these chapters, 28 and 29, when you get to the end of chapter 29, you will see a striking passage. 
I'm sorry, at the end of 28. Verse 42, as a part of Aaron's clothing, there is a piece of clothing that no one will ever see him wear. Think about this. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. But notice that the undergarment does not cover the totality of Aaron's naked flesh. It only covers his naked flesh from his hips to his thighs. Why is that? Because Aaron is not the solution to the problem of my lack of clothing. Aaron is not the solution to the problem of my nakedness. Aaron is the problem. Aaron is just like his father, Adam. I'm going to use this word because it's a discrete word. And if you don't understand the discrete word, ask a parent or ask somebody who does. Aaron, just like his father, Adam, is the progenitor of sin. And in order for the progenitor of sin to be in the presence of a holy God, that sin must be covered. That is much of the theological significance of circumcision. Getting dangerously close here. The progenitor of sin must have sin cut off, must have it removed. Blood must be shed for it to be gone so that it may be covered. Aaron is not the solution to the problem. Aaron is the problem. Aaron, the high priest himself, needs a high priest who rather than being the progenitor of unrighteousness is the progenitor of righteousness. And that's why I need the greater high priest. I need the Lord Jesus Christ whose Father is holy and majestic and beautiful and powerful and robed and clothed in that splendor because I am naked in my corruption, in my sin, and in my shame. And what I need is a high priest who will clothe me with garments of glory and beauty, and righteousness, and power, and majesty. I need a high priest who will restore me to the condition that I lost because of the sin of Adam. Oh, I wish I could go on with this stuff for an hour, for two hours, and walk you through all of the New Testament passages which show us that the final outcome of our salvation is glory. That's the final outcome. 2 Corinthians 3.11 If what was being brought to an end came with glory, meaning Moses and the Old Covenant, how much more will what is permanent have glory. 
2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans 8.18, I consider these present sufferings not worth comparison to the glory that shall be revealed in us. What is the outcome of your salvation? Yes, to be holy. Yes, to be fully consecrated. The outcome of your salvation is to be spectacularly glorious and beautiful. And there's only one place where you will see any residual effect of the fall That is in the wounds of the glorified Christ who died for you that you might be clothed in glory and in beauty. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, somehow, somehow, Keep before us, ever in front of us, the spectacular outcome of our salvation that we, like Jesus, will be brought into a condition in conformity with his image of glory and beauty, but without the wounds in our hands because of the wounds in his hands. Lord Jesus, keep this before us, we pray in your name. Amen.